Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit apertureHub.co. They say necessity is the mother of invention, and truer words have never been spoken when it comes to how COVID-19 has affected wealth management. Seemingly overnight, things that never could be done became a new way of doing business, and there is no going back. We have some fabulous interviews for you today. Your host, Ben Robinson, virtually sits down with Anna Zuchevsky, who leads wealth management globally for Boston Consulting Group. You will also hear from Christine Schmid, who heads up strategy at Additive. And finally, you'll hear from Laurence Maudril Augilere. And my humblest apologies for that pronunciation. She heads up Switzerland and Monaco for Cities Private Bank. Ben talks to these wealth management experts about what is going well and what is not, missed opportunities and surprising creativity, including onboarding customers completely digitally and shifting employee roles to where the bulk of the work is. In this episode, you will learn what digital wealth management really is, where new entrants fit into the market, how ready wealth managers are to take advantage of the move to return on intelligence, how COVID-19 has changed communications, and what the future of wealth management will be. You'll get our predictions on who will win, who will lose, and how this will all play out. And you'll hear about many other things as well. Enjoy the show. Anna, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I want to start with the white paper that you recently issued called For Wealth Managers, COVID-19 is a wake-up call. It begins with the following line. Outsiders might think that wealth management after a 10-year bull market should be in good shape to weather the storm, but this is not what we find. Anna, have wealth managers been complacent and failed to prepare for the future while times were good? <laughs> I would say a lot of the, the topics that we see that wealth managers have to focus on today they should have already been doing the last two to three years. And I would say they haven't really done too well in implementing them. Whether, you know, they fail to make the, the world shine, I would say they never really had the huge pressure under which they had to act because margins were still quite okay. On the other side, a lot of them had such a thin profit margin that right now with the crisis and with COVID-19, there will be not that much left over. Do you think that, that they now realize the severity of the situation, i.e. that it's, you know, what we're facing is is a downturn, of course, which will, will affect assets, but the fact that it's more than that, that it's also going to catalyze some bigger structural changes? Well, I think what they're realizing is, is, is two, three things. The first one that they are realizing is that the topics that they have to act on now, the actions that they have to take on now are not all necessarily new, with very few exceptions, but they have to accelerate. Yeah. And they actually have to really implement them well. For example, structural cost changes. For example, rethinking how they deliver advice. And actually enabling and embracing the opportunity to work remotely, to work digitally. And at the moment, it's the only way for wealth managers to interact with their clients. And before that, it used to be a threat. So I think that's, that's the one, that's the one bucket. The second one in terms of major structural changes. In the past, most wealth managers have not really 
I call it embraced and adapted their complete operating model. It's always been, you know, relatively a good business, 10 years of bull market, high volume of transactions, uh, which means basically their long-term view on profits hasn't really been distracted. So that also means that they never really had to make more cuts than just a little salami slices on their costs and on the operating model. So you have a lot of duplications, you have a lot of complexity, you have a lot of processes that are not necessarily scalable. And most of these structural topics haven't really been implemented well so far. And I think the other catalyst um, that we see is that after COVID-19, uh, there will be a lasting impact in terms of interactions and also servicing. There is no way that we're going to go back to a less digitized world post-COVID. It will have a very lasting impact in that respect, and it will have a lasting impact on the client experience, on the way relationship managers and investment advisors interact. But it will also have a lasting impact in terms of how you onboard, how you run KYC, what your future compliance model is going to look like. These are the three, the three big blocks where we definitely see strong acceleration. And lastly, if you look at the smaller banks and the smaller players in the market who on average have really high cost income ratios, the question is if they will not focus right now how many of them will really survive? And we actually do expect as an acceleration, also industry consolidation to start happening. What you lay out there is quite a, you know, quite a clear blueprint in terms of how uh, wealth managers should be responding. And how do you see them responding so far, especially, you know, kind of the speed with which they're, they're now tackling what they, put, you know, arguably should have done a, a while back? What they have been doing quite well, not all of them, but most of them, is the short-term actions directly linked to, to the COVID crisis, ensuring working from home, ensuring some acceleration on, on digitization, upgrading a little bit some client experience piece, start to run some scenarios, manage the liquidity. I would say, you know, those short-term actions, keeping their own people safe and engaged, all of that, I would say, you know, that, that has been done, uh, that has been done quite well. The part where they have also, at least some of them, become quite um, creative, I would say, and, and some have definitely surprised us, with, was also how they onboard clients, how they now run KYC, how they now um, you know, manage compliance and enable work from home, especially in, a, in an environment and in a business where confidentiality and also regulatory elements are very, um, very strict. And uh, so far, they haven't been able to even onboard a client remotely. And now in COVID, you know, some have really been creative. They uh, optimized digital signatures. They were able to do client identification through video calls. Before COVID, nobody really thought video calls, especially around Europe, would be something the clients would want. At the moment, um, it's actually one way of getting onboarded. So, so I think some of these uh, some of these reaction times have been uh, have been surprisingly quick and surprisingly agile. The thing that hasn't really gone so well uh, <laughs> for some of them was really the, the client communication. So some of them were 
weaker content that was not necessarily personalized. It was talking about the crisis, but partially not individualized enough or solution-based. And that is an angle which should have been an opportunity for wealth managers to do really well. And I would say on average, that part hasn't been the strongest. In in your report, you you definitely identify that as what as you say right is one area where digitization should be able to deliver you know a much better experience at scale. Do you think now that you know that we've had sort of this acceleration in digitization that that wealth managers appreciate that and they're starting to make those kinds of investments? And then how difficult is it to make longer term investments in an environment where you know there's such a, a a sort of focus on guarding liquidity and managing communication and things that seem so much more pressing. There is one major shift in terms of how investments are being done and also how levers are being prioritized in terms of where the focus and the action of the wealth managers is moving towards. So to give you one example, one bank actually had a quite a broad and ambitious digital roadmap before the crisis. But most of the topics and most of the angles were completely focused purely on the front experience, the client experience and, and that part. And, and there was quite a big budget behind it. They have revisited it, not cutting on that client experience piece, but adding a component um, in the whole digital roadmap, which actually allows them to reduce costs, to um, unlock some flexibility in in the processes, to help them partially in an end-to-end view become more scalable, and through that actually leading to to an efficiency increase of, of up to 20%. And that actually funds the partial investment also into the front and into the client experience piece. So you see a much stronger balancing of uh, complexity reduction and front client impact. And before COVID was mostly focused purely on the, on the front and just on the client. And, and I think that is just one of the examples um, that we see in terms of mindset shift. Another one that is very interesting is how do you ensure that you have a stable and continuous uh, revenue flow mid to long term. And it's about really thinking how you make your your clients more sticky, how you make your clients stay with you and and invest more money with you by truly tailoring uh, on one hand side and on the other side also making parts of the portfolios in a short term. And it's not easy, a bit less volatile to, to potential upcoming future shakeups. But that's that's I think um, that's I think one of the uh, one of the, the big notion. And in terms of you know like reassuring and I guess it also goes in that way is in times of, of crisis or COVID right now, you also have, with everybody working from home, you also have quite a large part of your employees in marketing and events or in, in the client front-facing angle, not necessarily being able to to do what they've been doing before. Uh, so some players have actually done um, done a quick creative approach in rethinking and reskilling some of their employees to now help where you have the big bulk of the work happening driven by COVID and allow them a more flexible engagement across the organization. And it actually puts them in a nice position to now experiment what their future working models could look like. Going into the pandemic, we're already starting to see a a growing differential in performance between 
those wealth managers that had made big investments in digitalization. I think you call them digital leaders in your report. And on the other side, you know, those that hadn't yet made those type of big investments in digitization. Presumably that differential in performance is getting magnified during the pandemic. Do we, do we already have any evidence that that's happening or is it too early to see that, you know, that divergent in performance? You already have seen that divergence in performance before the crisis. And that's, and that's a fundamental difference in performance. So we have, um, we have looked at 150 wealth managers last year across the globe in all business models, in all shapes and sizes. And we have also looked at the top performers and top performers in terms of profitability. There are, there are two major differences. What really makes the top performers top performers? First of all, they absolutely excel on the revenue margin because they already through digitization are able to deliver better to the client, cross sell better, um, have the right tools and they really focus their, their, their front to deliver. Plus they have also redefined their pricing model. And, and the, the difference globally, I mean, we're talking about a delta of uh, approximately depending on the regions, 15 to 18 basis points. So it's really, it's really significant. And these top performers, they also invest double and have invested double the amounts in digitization over the course of the last two to three years. So there is a direct correlation already before the crisis. And thirdly, what was a very insightful angle for us was we also looked at the cost difference. You know, are the, <laughs> is there the cost over assets of those top performers significantly different than the one of the average? And the third proof point here is that actually the difference globally seen is something like three or four basis points. So it's not as significant as on the revenue side. But the reason being for that, that these top performers have already started to invest. They have invested into the changes in operating model. They have invested into the new talent, into the new and accelerated ways of working. And like I said, double the amount in digitization, not just in the front, but across the value chain. Is it too early to have any data points sort of from the pandemic? I, I wouldn't say it's too early. One thing that you already see is that the banks that have invested in digitization, they were within a few days able to completely shift 80% of their workforce working from home, even in, in functions you wouldn't have imagined before. They were able to contact, reach out and provide advice in a digitized, faster way to their clients, far more personalized than anybody else because they could just review the portfolios. So yes, they were very clearly at an advantage uh, when the pandemic hit, hit the market. But we don't yet have sort of data points on financial performance, right? Just on financial anecdotal. performance. No, on financial performance, we don't have it yet. However, in terms of onboarding clients, in terms of winning new business, in terms of maintaining clients, and in terms of tailored communication, this is what we see. These were the players that have been able to do that better than the others. We talked a bit about what digital servicing looks like. What about analytics and the capabilities that wealth managers are using there in order to sort of, you know, build more tailored products for for customers how strong would you say the data analytical capabilities were of of wealth managers and do you think this might be one area where they're at risk from some of the sort of digitally native new entrants so <laughs> it may be it may be a bold statement but i don't think wealth managers yet are really very 
advanced and reaping the full benefits of the power of analytics today. So I think that's that's where they are compared to to other financial services uh, plays. With the few that can already do it, a lot of the times it's still a bit like a bit of analytics here and a bit of analytics there, but very few have a truly centralized data lake, which allows them to, on one hand side, fully personalize their client interface, fully personalize their offering and the value proposition to each one of the clients. And thirdly, also leverage analytics to allow them to scale up their processes and operating model. So what we hear more is that the analytics capabilities will significantly accelerate now in terms of enabling cross-sell, enabling pricing, taking into account client price sensitivities when rethinking, you know, value proposition design, et cetera. It's going to really be a big focus now. And before pandemic, I would say it's been there. It's been a great buzzword, but it's in very few cases been truly implemented end to end. Asia, uh, I would say, yes, it's been there and it's been definitely in the tech fins and in the more technology averse digital wealth managers. It's been playing to their complete advantage. In Europe, we are still quite far away from that. One other aspect of the report I wanted to pick up on was that you said, I think you said this also before that you know, in, in addition to changing operating models and, and servicing models, banks should also look at their sourcing models. But rather than just, you know, try to source things that are, are cheaper, they should also tap an ecosystem of partners to help deliver improving quality at scale. I totally agree with what you're saying, but it's such a difficult area to get buy-in from banks, right? Because, you know, this this is, you know, this is something that potentially threatens to cannibalize existing revenue streams. And so I guess the question is, you know, do you think that culturally banks and wealth managers are ready to to look at changing their sourcing models in that kind of way, you know, to actually insource, you know, even parts of their asset management? <laughs> when you mean sourcing, like outsource parts of their asset management? That's what you mean, right? Yes, outsource functions to to India because they're low cost. You know, what what about finding somebody who could offer a sort of better automated investment service than the one the bank has, for example? I guess what, what wealth managers are facing today is a true definition of what their core competencies are. And it is not like a process or your technology is going to be a key differentiator for you to win in the future. And we already see today that some wealth managers and, and private banking players are actually setting a primary focus on client servicing and, and investment servicing, while some of the rest in the in the value chain in terms of middle back office, etc., is already quite radically and can be even more radically outsourced to, to third-party providers. On the other side, if you actually look at wealth managers today, they are still very strongly vertically integrated, and it will require quite a change of mindset to let go of what is not core. In terms of, you know, we do our own products. We built our own, uh, our own app. We, um, we, we have our own reporting, um, instead of actually leveraging some of the plays that are out there in the market. So I would expect going forward to also accelerate some of the changes that need to happen and accelerate some of the, um, digitization elements that have to happen that actually fintechs 
who are very focused on individual capabilities will be a, a great source to pool and a great source to actually integrate uh, to deliver some of these uh, capabilities required. And then the question is, in the future, what will wealth managers be, right? Will they be the ones that focus on wealth management, financial wellness, client experience? Will they be the players that will have everything kind of in-house across the value chain? And then the challenge is, how do they get scale in terms of number of clients, et cetera, to really put the volume on their platform? And then you will have the players that actually are purely driven by technology, which are, you know, the tech fin and, and the digital wealth managers who, who actually are already having the digitized business model and don't yet have the direct access to the customers. You said earlier on that, that you expect consolidation in this market because, you know, the, what COVID and then subsequently what, you know, an, uh, an acceleration digitization will do will it, is it will clearly separate the winners from from those that are less strong and less able to adapt. How soon do you think that phase of consolidation will happen? And is it just the question of the large consuming the small, or is it more nuanced? And then, if you allow me a third question, um, <laughs> do, do digital leaders really need to buy assets? Because won't superior value add just see them win those customers anyway from those that that aren't able to provide that kind of value add let me take one one question at a time <laughs> and try to bundle it today nearly half of all wealth managers has a cost income ratio of over 80% and some are close to 100 which means they're already not very profitable today the degree and the speed of consolidation, in our view, will depend on the severity of the crisis and also on how long the crisis will last. What we see is that size and profitability are definitely correlated, although also here we see some examples of, of small boutique banks that are very successful and they are very focused. So in terms of the speed at which consolidation will happen, Comparing it to the previous crisis, post-2008-2009, we have seen the, the big shift in terms of actually reduction in terms of number of wealth managers, approximately 18 to 24 months post the crisis. Um, now, in, in times of COVID, I would partially expect an even earlier kick-in of the M&A and consolidation wave driven by two, two drivers. The first one is already today, a lot of wealth managers uh, that are strong before the crisis are thinking and seeing this as an opportunity, how in a relatively, relatively short period of time, they can acquire scale and acquire capability to make them stronger post-COVID. And typically, you will have 15 to 20% of players that come out stronger after the crisis. So they will be the consolidation drivers and they have already started to screen and look for these opportunities partially today. And then you will have the ones that will be so severely hit because they've already been in such a poor position before the crisis that it's going to be more a matter of decision when do they sell to still get good value compared to how long can they last to somehow keep their business afloat. And, and this balance, I think, is going to, to drive the speed um, at which the consolidation wave will start. 
On your other question, we already see today that some of the large wealth managers, they have significantly grown in the share of the market that they own in the past few years. So yes, it's definitely going to be the mid-sized and larger players acquiring some of the smaller ones, which on average are today more unprofitable than uh, than some of the, the larger players, of course. Um, because of the scalability of their business. But like like I said before, we will always have a few small boutique plays and niche plays that will continue to be very successful already like we have today. But they are very focused. And then the the last question was was around whether it's actually necessary. So if we think about, you know, if if the the really successful digital leaders in this space, do they need to buy up their sort of frail competition or can they just take their customers through better execution anyway. <laughs> okay. So um, a lot of the, the pure digital players that we have in the market today, they have simple and, and nice pragmatic client experience. They are very customer oriented and friendly, but what they do not have is the access to the clients. And let's not forget that customer acquisition cost is quite high. So, I wouldn't necessarily see the digital players being the consolidators in the market. I I don't see that. I would rather see some of the bigger players trying to acquire the capabilities of the digital play or even more a partnership model where some of the more traditional players have the great access to clients and they do have the client relationships to actually tap into the digital capabilities of the other place to have it as an integrated service model and as an integrated offering towards these clients. I don't believe that the entrants such as robo-advisors are actually going to be acquiring the smaller chunks of the clients that we see in, in the wealth managers today that may be up for sale at some point in time. What, what do you think the end state is? Does the middle just disappear? And what's the final number of wealth managers you think we'll have once, once this consolidation phase is over? What we will definitely see in the future that the long tail of small wealth managers will actually disappear and only a few boutique plays will remain. The large wealth managers will clearly gain in market share, but they will only be able to do that if they do the right investments and the right level of personalization and client experience, and they would also act quite fast. The the broad middle play, they will only survive if they stop to be a big bank but they will also just really refocus and turn around their operating model, be it outsource or be it really focus on a few segments and a few real credible value propositions. Christine, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Let's maybe start by asking you what Additive is. Thanks a lot, Ben. Additive is a technology company. It was established in uh, '98. And it helps the leading financial institutions to capitalize on digitization. The most known product is the digital finance suit. That's an orchestration engine uh, for wealth management in particular. Uh, Newly, we have launched the Kickstarter series um, that's even faster enabling uh, for for wealth managers to, to digitize. Additionally, it provides some expert systems. It's basic data analytics, but also credit tools. I would say it's global, excluding the U.S. And this has some <laughs> regulatory reasons. It's, uh, the U.S. is a beast of its own. So it's uh, doing business out of Zurich, Singapore, Nairobi, and Frankfurt. And what's it like trying to sell 
technology to banks and wealth managers at the moment during a global pandemic? I think it's the right the right time. For the ones that haven't set up a servicing model through digital channels, i.e. where their advisors could serve their client through a digital means, they're doomed. So, so you're saying almost like counterintuitively that this has actually risen to the top of their corporate agenda because quite simply they can't service their customers in this environment without better technology. I would say so. For the ones that uh, were still um, more towards the old dine and wine, uh, that that's that's really that's really over. And assuming these guys, okay, let's assume they have the motivation to to implement new technology, and they have the budget, even in a pandemic, to implement new technology. How can they do it practically if their IT staff are working remotely? Working remotely doesn't doesn't harm work. <laughs> It just it just shifts it, and and if you look for the for the wealth managers, uh, they were used, I would say, on the IT staff side to work out of different locations. That's that's common standard. So we even were able, just to give you an example, we were able with a large Swiss bank, and it was was uh, it's public with PostFinance to launch uh, their new digital wealth advice during the pandemic. So that's that's no limitation at all, in particular if you talk to um, IT staff on their side. So, Christine, before working at Additive, you used to work at or in the industry, right? You were in the wealth management industry. What's your view on how bad a sort of financial correction we're looking at, and how that will affect the wealth management industry? So, yes, we will have a negative correction. Uh, we don't know if it's a V or a U or a W in the end, uh, but it looks definitely like a, a correction. The numbers that are coming out uh, from either the banks um, on their estimates, but also from um, the, the IMF are, are simply staggering. So, how, how does that affect wealth management? Certainly, we will have to refocus back on trust and quality and, and people will focus more on preservation of capital, um, but aligned with what I would call stability and, and service at a, fa- at a fair level, at a fair price. The second thing is what, what we would expect, and we see that also on the government side, is a refocus towards more sustainable investing again. It is already growing, like there is no tomorrow, but uh, it will continue. So if you look on the government side, they link um, their lending often now these days to a more greener approach of doing business. Um, The same will happen on the investment side. This will continue. And on the retail side, I think we need tools in wealth management that allow for saving, that combine it with budgeting, and that have it in a a transparent and fairly priced way. I think the term uh, that is often used and coming out of the UK, where, where, where from I hear it often, is financial well-being. It's really on the retail side, helping to save, but also helping to fund through a a more difficult uh, time on on the economic side for for every retail client. You just published a report on post-pandemic wealth management. And I think we've seen a number of these types of reports come out, right, where people try to, to anticipate what the future holds. And... So there's a bit of that in your report, but the other thing I, I really liked about it is you actually explain what you mean by digital wealth management. You know, because I think a lot of times we, you know, people either just assume we know what what is meant by digitization, um, or they sort of, for me, they they minimize what it is and just assume it's about, as you say, servicing clients through digital channels. So 
can we can we start by having you explain what or what you think and what additive thinks is is digital wealth management? Let, let me explain it from two views. First of all, from the view of, of a bank, of a wealth manager, and secondly, then from a client view. From the view of, of a bank, it transforms their business model. We always say at Additive, it changes the operating model, it changes the servicing model, and it changes the sourcing model. So operating model, it allows a cheaper production on wealth management. It allows on the servicing side a easier, simpler interaction with advisors to the clients, even taking all the regulatory means we have out there into account. And on the sourcing side, it allows that you benefit from an engine in between, an orchestration engine in between that already sources either the best partners for solutions or the best investments for solutions, and you can build up on that. So you don't have to do it um, on your own. Um, this all, these three layers together, it's not only wealth management, it makes, for the banks, it makes the risk management easier, it makes the compliance side easier, but also the audit side easier. So it's really various layers where, where it helps to transform, coming back to where, where it all had begun to transform the business model. That's from a bank's point of view. From a client point of view, digitization in wealth management is 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 really, it's partially about democratizing. It's from an ex- exclusive offering um, open to a broader number of clients. Honestly, it allows as well uh, to produce cheaper. It allows as well to have uh, lower fees in and lower costs. It can be personalized. So, in in the past, you had a fantastic product, and this fantastic product had to fit for a majority of your of your customers. You know more about the customers by combining different data sources, and you can start to personalize that. You can start to personalize the offering, the information you provide. It's not only that it has to be included within the the e-banking, but also it can be banking as a service. So it has to be becoming even more seamless. So included, for example, in a super app where you do other transactions as a client, but you have banking services as well aligned. This is how it breaks it up. But it will always be about trust. It will always be about a safe way to store your wealth. Um, what is newly added, it has to be convenient. So where where the clients do their transaction, they expect as well banking. And it has to provide a, a value add. I think that's that's where digitization or digital wealth management really changes from from the old world. Essentially the trade-off that used to exist between quality on the one hand and scale on the other has sort of disappeared. We can provide better quality at better scale or higher scale. Would you say that's fair? And to lower um, assets under management levels. So to lower levels of wealth per end client. And in that kind of world, it would suggest that we can provide wealth management to a much larger population of customers. And so how, by how much bigger do you think we could grow the addressable market? Because I guess, you know, m- most of what we talked about up until now is how we're talking about, you know, a crisis, a reduction in assets. But on the flip side, if this sort of accelerates the push to digitization, then it also accelerates the opening up of a much bigger market for those wealth managers that can capitalize on that shift. It's, it's a huge opportunity. It allows the scale, be it with call center, either self-serve, with call center or with advisor uh, behind. At the moment, the, the only small amount is really advised of the, of the assets out there. 
if you take the growth uh, we are expecting um, in Southeast Asia, but also partially the growth we are expecting in Africa, it's really a super, super multiplier. So from today's around 50 million of people that really are fully, fully advised, uh, certainly at the lower scale of, of complexity up to uh, nicely into the 1.7 billion uh, number of people, if you can scale it properly. So I'm not going to try to do the the maths, but that's a that's a, yeah, as you say, it's a big. It multi- will it will come it will come at a different price tag, and um, it will come obviously for way way lower assets on the management per client. But there is where where digitization helps to open that client groups. And what sort of extent? So what's the what's the um, share of your business that's coming from? existing wealth managers versus new entrants. You've got kind of all the right ingredients for new entrants here because you've got you know, a large profit pool, fast-changing technology, fast-changing customer needs, which would suggest that there's you know a once-in-a-generation kind of opening for new entrants. To what, to what extent are you working with new entrants and to what extent do you think they can enter the market successfully and build trust? We, we are working with both sides. With new entrants, in particular, on the pension side, it is not that simple because it uh, is highly regulated area. Um, but they're faster in terms of the, the platforms and the offerings. And normally, the new entrants then offer their model as a white label for the incumbents. So they follow fast um, behind. I think that's that's the normal model we see throughout uh, various countries in, in Europe, in particular as well Switzerland. So they, they team up. It's, it's, it has become a together uh, and not only and against, payment was different. On the payment side in particular, if you look at the case of Revolut, this was different because it really hit it into a, a highly profitable area of um, foreign exchange. But here it, it's more a collaboration and a service a service model um, in, in the interest of the end clients. You're saying that so far, you know, new entrants are more friend than foe, but how hard would it be either for banks to replicate this kinds of simple digital services that new entrants have provided, and also how hard would it be for these new entrants to move up the value chain towards sort of, you know, larger, higher net worth customers? For the bank, if they start on a green field, it is doable. For the bank, if they integrate it in their existing um, systems, it is rather expensive and a long-term project. Um, so it really depends on, on the uh, incumbent side, how willing they are um, to to start businesses from scratch and maybe even cannibalize some of their still uh, attractive um, earning streams. How easy is it for the new entrants to scale up? We are seeing most of uh, the, the digital attacker banks really at the boundaries of wealth, I would say. Uh, they started with payment. Uh, they had a lot of success by cannibalizing into high profit areas like foreign exchange, uh, uh, now they are really at the border of wealth management. Barbarians are at the gate, as it were. At the gate, at the gate, yeah. exactly. <laughs> they're at the gate of wealth management. Um, what, what we see is they're not growing as as they were originally expecting, and this has really to do uh, with with the trust where you store your wealth. Um, if you have a chatbot on the other side that sends you in circles, or if you at least can call a call center or uh, can call your advisor, that, that's different. That's really a difference. So there, there are some limitations in Europe. In the US, we have seen completely a different picture. If you look at uh, the aims of, of Acorns, for example, um, they've entered in particular the 401k business 
uh, quite successfully and are growing nicely there. What you're saying is to be, to be truly digital requires a business model change. And to some extent, it's going to involve cannibalizing existing revenue streams. But what you're also saying about the additive system, if I understand it correctly, is this, it can be introduced in a much more phased fashion, right? So, so in other words, you can both help banks to deal with the immediate need to service customers better, but also provide a simpler route to fundamentally changing their operating and sourcing model over time. Would you say that's fair? So you can either, you know, for those that are really um, progressive, they can immediately switch to a new business model with a new operation, a new, you know, a new um, business venture. But for those that are a bit more conservative, they can do it in a phased fashion using additives orchestration engine. Absolutely. So the beauty is they can transform their business model in steps if they want to, or they can even become more aggressive. Uh, the way the way it is built, um, if you look at the hybrid wealth management, it's really tailored to a new servicing model. New servicing model by allowing working from home and serving serve the client as best as possible, and certainly better than through a, a simple phone call. At the same time, you could go fully uh, towards accumulation robo, even being more aggressive out there um, in the wealth management side, combining with with other sourced options. So it, it allows both. Decumulation versus accumulation. Why is that decumulation opportunity A, so big, and B, as you write in your report, uh, so overlooked up until now? Accumulation is, is growing wealth. So you start to save preferably as early as possible at the age of 25, and you grow your wealth through savings and obviously through smart investing. Over time, towards where you start to live partially from the wealth you have accumulated. It also can be that you grow your wealth uh, in, in young age and then uh, start to decumulate because you start your own uh, venture, for example, startup, or you go traveling around the globe for 12 months and you have saved 20, 20K and you want to live off that for, for a year. Things like that are possible. That, that's as well would be decumulating a reduction of wealth. Why is it? Why is decumulation these days such a such a large opportunity? Why hasn't it been neglected till till now? Um, if you look in the Western world, um, pension had a a quite a decent level of cost of living covered. The risk is uh, with the demographic pattern we have, with the lack of reforms we have seen, but also with the low interest rate level which we have now had for yeah for quite quite some years, is that you face a pension gap. So that your cost of living, your targeted cost of living will not be covered by your pension anymore. And thus you have to find a way to decumulate your wealth during the retirement period in a most efficient way by not giving up completely on risk, by having the right investment products, uh, which then allows you to live, uh, yeah, to live a life free of concern or free of financial concerns. And that's, that's a huge opportunity. Um, if you look into numbers, um, the gap is estimated up to 400, I think it's trillions, a staggering number, which will be needed to close the gaps. So either through savings, um, but also through smart investment um, offerings. If you look at you know all the fintech entrants into wealth management, they've all been, well, they seem to all be mostly focused on on accumulation, you know, people like wealth from Betterment and so on. Why, why so few people focus on decumulation? Do you think? I think it's a natural pattern. Um, the uh, digital 
entrants, they focus on the younger population, most of them. Um, I haven't seen a digital entrant that focuses on retired persons yet. Maybe to come, maybe to come, but I haven't seen that yet. So obviously, if you focus on a, on a, on a client group, uh, 20 to 40 years old, um, you do not look into the accumulation into pension savings yet. You look into accumulation. You want this, this fun products, uh, this easy to use. You uh, want to cover traveling or you wanted in the past to cover traveling and uh, for an exchange, payments made easy. It's the lifestyle uh, that covers to that age group. Therefore, obviously, the ones entering uh, that market were not focused on on the needs of the uh, elderly population. But also us, huh? we all become older and at some point. And uh, if you look at the age of 55 into your pension, it's too late to cover the gap. You have to start earlier. Yeah. Uh, we believe this is a huge trend and uh, wouldn't be surprised um, if market entrants not only start to look into accumulation, but also on the way to build up into retirement. The best example would be uh, Acorns with its 401k plans. They do that. It's still in the accumulation phase, um, but at some point um, their their clients will be retired. It might take a bit longer if they're 25 years old today, but um, they will be retired. So it will become a normal business for them. One of the concepts that I really, really liked in the report, in fact, I go as far as to say I loved it, is the sort of pivot in value proposition from being about return on assets to being about return on intelligence. Can you just go into slightly more detail about what that fundamental shift is in the value proposition of wealth managers? In terms of the return on assets, you looked at your assets on the management and you looked at the profitability of the investment products uh, that could have been sold within that group of assets under management. And obviously, therefore, um, the focus was on on the best products um, to source, uh, the best advice then uh, to give to the clients that uh, the level of, of sales with uh, the best, hopefully the best products was, uh, was the highest. We expect this to change Assets under intelligence, how, how we call it, or return on intelligence, it's not using only an investment product per se, but it's using multiple data sets. It's combining it and it's giving even more personalized advice. Um, it can give even optimized risk advice uh, and therefore as well optimized returns. So it's not uh, the product per se that's in focus. It's really the whole construction within wealth management, but also other data sets around um, that are more important to, to advise the clients going forward than simply the, the pure investment product focus. You don't see that many wealth managers yet ready to cannibalize their business. How ready do you see wealth managers to take advantage of this move to return on intelligence, which presupposes that they're ready to take this role as a kind of concierge and act to sort of introduce customers to all sorts of different products and services. The, the shift towards return on intelligence, um, that's, that's something they're very keen on doing. It is, it is linked, obviously, and we, we briefly touched upon base that before, it's as well linked to the whole area of sustainable investing. Uh, sustainable investing has a lot of intelligence behind to really to select the right the right investments, um, but also the willingness if, if an investment wasn't or hasn't proven as sustainable to shift 
uh, the transparency therein. I think the banks are are really willing to go uh, go, go that extra route as well to unbundle. At the moment, we have a clear clear shift towards ETFs and index products. Okay, but we don't know what's really in there in terms of holding. Who is really the, the detailed level of of know how we have per per index is limited, and therefore there will be another layer of intelligence that you could add. Um, by really looking into the portfolio, unbundling all the ETFs, unbundling all the indices and, and adding it up then again on ISIN level or an investment level. Uh, and, and guess what? Uh, you might be surprised on some concentration risk that's in a client portfolio. And you might advise the client differently. That's another level of intel- adding intelligence to, to an advice or combining it with payment data. If you know uh, the client behavior on the consumer side, on the consumption side, uh, you might know products a client would like. So you can, again, use this intelligence uh, and, and provide it in a, in a better way. Or last but not least, and I think the industry has discussed that for quite some long, uh, a long time, you bring the intelligence of various clients, clients behaving uh, the same together and, and leveraging that for each single client. Last question. So we've talked, I think, reasonably narrowly about wealth management, but I wanted to, if you're okay with it, to zoom out and talk about another paper that you recently issued, which was about the changing needs of society when it comes to financial services. Financial services hasn't provided society that it needs to, and have those needs become more urgent in light of the pandemic? The big question mark, is it the financial services who hasn't provided it or is it the the general economic, the academic rules we are all uh, behaving alongside? The paradigm we, we worked alongside was um, optimizing of, of return, while the problem was that not all the costs were internalized. And that was really the problem. Not all the costs that were taken by society and in particular uh, by the planet. And if all the costs would have been taken uh, properly, certainly then the financial market would have priced it differently. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's really the goal of the financial industry to start to re- not only recommend sustainable investments, but also to lend on the corporate lending side according to the rules that takes the cost into account for the society to live on this planet, and I believe we just have one. There is no alternative, no planet B. And the the financial sector has a, has a key role because it's it's still the engine that keeps the funding alive. So from savings, deposits, into lending, into economic growth, into job creation. And obviously, this this cycle has to be profitable, yes, but at the same time, it has to take the costs uh, for society and has to take the cost uh, for for the planet. Climate change is a big topic into account. So that was my last question, but as it turns out, it was actually my penultimate question. Because how do we do that? How do we how do we take uh, those externalities and bake them into the price of of assets and transactions? How do you do that? Um, that's that's the that's the question. <laughs> this industry is looking into for the last twenty years. If you use the market to do it, um, then you would need to take the majority funding for each corporate. And the majority funding for a corporate normally is debt. 
so bonds and not equity. So I'm a big believer in um, the international capital market, the ICMA rules for green bonds and for social bonds. These are rule sets uh, that are not only legally enforceable, but also international. So if a corporate can issue a bond under a green bond rule set, has to rec- the requirements, they have to be clear and they have to fulfill that. And the market then can price a green bond more attractive uh, than an, a normal bond for, from the same company. So let, let's take, for example, Volkswagen. They want to fund a new plant uh, where they build the new e-cars. And the new plant has to be according to certain standards the buildings are done, but also about alternative energy use, so solar panels on the roof, all that set. They get cheaper funding than if they built a, a plain vanilla um, plant next to a... Um, a nuclear power plant, for example. There's very, very basic example, but um, you start to shift the funding towards greener, towards more social. By social, I mean, uh, for example, if you have to fund a bond for uh, Inditex, it's the mother company of Salando. Um, and obviously, they have uh, to fulfill certain rules in the way their clothing is produced even if it comes from Bangladesh, and only if these rules are fulfilled, they're controlled, then they can issue the bond under these standards, and they can issue cheaper. And the more the companies shift toward that standards, the more the rest and the old style will become um, expensive. And that's a, that's a way of market mechanism starting, um, starting to include the pricing and using the market to do the pricing. Because what's not working out there if we're trying to find out uh, who is doing what and uh, externalize a price into, this is what we have tried, this is not working. And through the bond side, through, through the debt side, you could use the market mechanism to start a pricing mechanism, that's important. So, Lawrence, I wanted to start off by just asking what so far, as we're living through this pandemic, has been the hardest thing for you to manage in your job? Coordinating everything. Uh, We had to adjust to a lot of changes. Uh, Usually when we need to adjust to change, it's about your manager is changing or something is changing, but one element. In this case, we had to adjust to how we deal with clients, how we ensure continuity um, in in the way we service our clients, how we deal with our people, understand their personal circumstances, how we communicate um, among each other internally. So it's more making sure that we had everything under control uh, to ensure continuity of business. And I must say that on the technology aspect, uh, it took us a few days, but because we are a global bank and we we, we are used to have people traveling uh, all over the world and, and working uh, from a laptop, we were pretty well set up. So yep. the challenge was more on the coordination at, uh, uh, with the clients and, and, the, and the people. Because I suppose it was not not only were the normal sort of channels of communication disrupted, but at that very time you probably needed to speak more often with customers and with with employees or, or with coworkers than, than normal, right? Because they needed reassurance and so on. So, 
Is, is that true? Was it, would, you, would you say that's a fair statement that at the very time you needed to speak most and communicate most, the, circum, you know, the, the mechanisms you would ordinarily use for communication were, were disrupted? Absolutely. I mean, in a very short period of time, we had to get used to a lot of technology-related uh, jargon, how to connect, yeah. which system to use, uh, are we on the cloud, are we on the network, are we inside our own uh, safe environment at work in terms of network. And same for, for clients. Our clients are ultra high net worth, they are global citizens, they, they travel a lot. Uh, they were not necessarily used to uh, dialing to Zoom or, or City Meet, which is the system we, we use. They were used to go to a meeting and, and meet actual people. So we had to revisit entirely how we communicate uh, among each other. Uh, among each other internally, it's important as well because we we needed to be mindful of the bandwidth that we were using, um, audio, video. Uh, it had consequences on, on, on the network. Um, and, and with customers as well. Um, but I must say that it took about a week or two to get used to this. Um, and it's almost, almost uh, common practice now. Yeah, because I was reading somewhere that you, it takes something like 60 days for people to form new habits. Would you say that your customers and your you know, your team members have formed new habits. And to some extent, even if we could go back to normal, we won't go back to the way things were exactly before the crisis. We, we have completely reorganized the way we communicate. So we have large uh, forums internally where we, we, we like to communicate the important uh, uh, features and the decision that we are taking for the private bank. Uh, and at the same time, we have smaller forums where everybody can voice their own concerns and ask uh, their own questions. Uh, and, and I think we are going to, uh, to keep that for a while because um, of obviously in Switzerland, the economy has uh, reopened, uh, but at the same time, we have not uh, sent anybody back to the office. Uh, we are thinking about the safety of, of employees. So we will need to continue uh, communicating that way, uh, definitely for a longer period of time. And even when we will be able to go back to the office, so we're trying to say not go back to work because we feel we are efficiently yeah. working. But when we go back to, to the office, uh, because of the, the, the distancing and, and the security measures, I don't think we will be able to do large uh, meetings anyway. Uh, and it will be from our desks. And therefore, phones and videos will continue to, uh, to, to, to be the, the way forward. Looking back on this, you know, so, so you can argue whether this was a black swan or a white swan, you know, whether whether we should have anticipated it or not, or, or whether we couldn't have anticipated this crisis. So we'll leave that question aside for a second. But the, I guess if we could just argue that what the pandemic is doing in some form is just accelerating the pace of digitization, right? So we're moving much quicker than 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 was the case before the crisis in terms of remote work and uh, and digital interactions. Do you, do you think that the wealth management community could have been better prepared and maybe should have made more investments in this digital future? You know, 
uh, while times were good and, and you know, in, ahead of this crisis? Well, what I would say is that for sure, there was a, a strong level of awareness of the disruptive technologies, the need to become digital. Uh, we were uh, all exploring our options. I would say that the smaller players could benefit from uh, adding some um, new uh, digital tools quite easily and for larger uh, wealth managers, uh, it had to be compatible with uh, a broader network and system. But I think we've been uh, spending a lot of time looking at the, the, the options that, that were around us, how we could become more digital, how we could use AI um, in the way we um, improve clients' experience, uh, the tools that uh, we make available internally to our bankers. Um, and we actually created a, fun, um, a group uh, called the Investment Innovation Lab dedicated to that. So they, that's what they were doing all the time, talking to fintech companies, uh, technology companies, looking at the new um, options and what could uh, take us forward. If anything, this COVID-19 crisis has indeed accelerated the way we looked at the digital world. Just to give you an example, we, we had started to uh, onboard clients digitally, but we still had a few hurdles to overcome most of the time, it was around regulatory uh, requirements that we couldn't uh, fulfill completely um, uh, easily. So the fact that we had to work from home, um, we triggered a lot of conversation to solve uh, yep. these uh, this points. And, and basically, we managed to, to be 100% uh, digital in uh, in onboarding and opening new, new clients in a week, while if we had not had this crisis, we will probably still uh, trying to uh, to work on on the hurdles. So it has it has accelerated uh, definitely. And do you think that so clearly, you know, the most pressing problems the the bank is solving very quickly, like you know, how do we onboard a customer completely digitally? But do you think you'll now prioritize more? digital spending but particularly where, you know for things that are sort of deeper down the technology stack or for things that affect not just client servicing but also the operating model and the sourcing model of the bank so do you think now there's a sort of appetite to 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 make bigger investments in digital beyond the stuff that you absolutely had to do because you you know you couldn't function as normal without it Absolutely. I think digital anyway is the way forward. And uh, it was clear uh, to the wealth management uh, community, I'm pretty sure, even before this crisis. Um, so all this has just been an accelerator. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure we will lock in uh, what we've managed to, uh, to, to achieve in, in that field. But it's also a, a, con a constant, uh, a world that is uh, constantly evolving. There are new technologies all the time. Things are being tested, uh, whether it's blockchain, which is a technology we use a lot at CD, or artificial intelligence to um, to see how we can use our clients' uh, preferences or behaviors uh, to deliver a better um, a better system or better tools uh, to service them more efficiently. But uh, definitely, I don't think clients would want us to to go back and be less digital, especially the new generation and the millenniums. They are used to uh, to connect and access everything. Um, 
and making um, information available efficiently and quickly is, is very, very important. Would you say that you're clear on kind of what the next big priority is in, in the digital journey for, for your bank? It's clear we have a full uh, team dedicated to exploring uh, our options, uh, talking to technology companies all the time. If anything, um, a large portion of, of our budget, I, I know, goes to technology and uh, anything digital. So I have no doubt that uh, we will continue to, to lead in, in that field. Absolutely. So uh, pre-crisis, we, I think it was clear that we, we were starting to see the, the big banks operating at massive scale um, were starting to outperform smaller wealth managers. What do you think happens post-crisis? And do you think this is also, do you think this kind of acceleration and digitization also, also creates the, you know, the potential entry point for, for new players? So maybe more fintech-orientated players? I think indeed there is an opportunity for um, smaller banks or, or fintech players uh, to, to enter the, the industry and be extremely good at one particular uh, thing. For example, uh, online payments or uh, robot advisory in one particular field. If you start from scratch and you don't have the legacy of a large uh, database and, and a full network, it, it's by definition um, an opportunity to uh, to be uh, very competitive and, and very good in one particular uh, line. A segment, but for uh, large banks, I would say, um, and cities focusing on the ultra high net worth, what we are uh, trying to 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 do is to focus on keeping uh, the full service offering, and uh, that that's very important uh, to us. We are not trying to be extremely good in one area, but we are trying to uh, continue to provide the full breadth of, of service. Uh, therefore, when we look at at, at technology. Uh, an outperformance um, it, it's on a more strategic uh, long-term basis do you think that we'll see consolidation as a result of this crisis i.e you know if it if what we're seeing in other industries happens in wealth management i.e there's a sort of bigger separation in performance between the winners and 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 those that are left behind do you think that will lead to some to consolidation there should be opportunities as well in that field, and it's been a trend anyway, especially in Switzerland for, for several years now, if you count uh, the number of of small banks, mid-banks, and, and large banks. Uh, I mean, clearly there is a, a trend uh, for uh, con- consolidation. Uh, so I guess that that, that should uh, continue. Uh, whether it creates opportunities uh, because of, of the current situation, uh, probably uh, we can see that, for example, access to uh, to lending uh, is, is becoming is still available, but it's coming a bit more restrictive. So, I guess uh, at some point uh, there will be uh, uh, some difficulties for smaller banks to continue to provide cer- certain services, and therefore they could be open to uh, to, to to merge. But it also triggers the questions on the um, 
when we think about consolidation and we try to merge uh, two teams, two systems, uh, two client database, there, there is a culture element to it. So it's also complicated. So I guess the M&A activity will continue to will continue because this, the trend had started uh, before, but it's not that simple to uh, to, buy a, to buy a smaller bank and integrate culturally with the systems and, and, the, and the client base. It's not that simple. What are you telling your clients? You know, what advice are you giving your clients about how to position their portfolios and their assets in response to COVID-19? Are you advising them to sort of sit tight, you know, um, to try not to worry too much about the volatility and just hold for the long term? Or are you actively getting them to sort of reposition to more defensive assets? So that's an interesting question because uh, obviously the, the market reaction has been quite sudden in, in March, and we had very limited time to uh, to, to, to review our uh, recommendations. So we had just finished our outlook for 2020, for example, which was yeah. quite uh, promising. So we had to uh, do a lot of groundwork uh, trying to understand when we had. Pre- when we had been in previous situations, if markets tended to recover quickly, if we were in um, a situation completely new that needed to be reassessed uh, completely. And so it took us uh, about uh, two weeks just to to reassess the situ- situation, take a bit of, of perspective and to we have we are taking always a strategic long term view when we issue recommendation and uh, to, to our clients and and guide them to manage their wealth for example advising to um, to remain invested we feel that uh, trying to time the market in this environment is very tricky. And if you miss uh, the, the, the best uh, 10 days of the market over the last years, uh, you could uh, significantly miss out. So we are telling clients to remain invested, but we've increased the quality of the underlying investments, diversification, which is a very common concept, um, has never mattered that much uh, than, than today. Uh, but we are also taking a thematic view. I, I give you an example. Uh, investing in private equity today, putting new money at work, uh, giving money to a manager who would be able to invest post-COVID uh, and deploy the money as the opportunity arise, I think uh, could be a a good recommendation to uh, to look at this space so to try to generate some returns that are less correlated to the traditional markets um, I think is very good thematic investing uh, we were very engaged uh, before the this crisis in um, technology healthcare uh, d- digital disruptions the key themes that we, we believe will have superior growth going forward uh, because they have their own trends we continue to focus and, and recommend to invest in, in them. Uh, at the same time, what we are telling clients is that it's very important to measure uh, the impact of this crisis on the EPS uh, earnings. And I think EPS um, growth has been revised uh, downwards quite uh, significantly, but it's not clear yet how much it will hurt um, in Europe and, and in 
the US or, or Asia, uh, because the crisis is um, is evolving at a different uh, pace and economies will reopen at different uh, timing. Um, and we don't know whether there will be a second uh, wave, yep. uh, etc. So w- what we are telling our, our client is uh, to, to, to be careful uh, on, on the equity markets to invest in the high quality, high dividend uh, paying stocks and thematic investments, uh, but to be ready to uh, to deploy uh, mm-hmm. more money along the way because uh, we, we might see markets lower before it actually uh, turns back. Uh, we, we've also advised our clients to explore opportunities in, in the capital market area. Volatility has increased. Our clients are trading a lot. And by selling volatility, uh, at least uh, short term, is, is a good way to enter the market at lower levels. So th- we, we are trying to be cautious but at the same, and remain invested. But there are some opportunities around volatility and, and private equity that we are recommending to, to capture. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about our Aperture community, visit aperturehub.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.